0: Good morning. Our scripture today is from 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, If in Christ we have hope in this life, this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is God's word.
1: Uh, good morning. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. <clears throat> at Church of the Redeemer, uh, and it's, uh, it's good to see all of you this morning. Boy, it was tough to get up. My my uh, my ne- my niece told my um, my sister, "Mommy, it's dark outside." You know, because you get used to that being light, and then it's dark, and it's tough. So uh, it's good to see so many people. Uh, we are going to do something. We're in the middle of a series in First Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. But for the next four weeks leading up to Easter which is on the last Sunday of the month, we're going to skip a little bit ahead in this letter that Paul is writing that we have been kind of just walking through um, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're going to go all the way to chapter 15, because in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which, of course, is what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. It is the most extensive, theologically dense treatment of the resurrection in all of the scriptures. So we want to slow down take smaller chunks, spend an entire month thinking through the implications of the resurrection together, again, as we head towards uh, the end of the month and the celebration of Easter, okay? Now, this morning, let me just ask this question. And, and it's loaded. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk, even in secular places in our culture, about um, about this. What happens when we die? You know, is there anything out there on the other side of death? see, it's a question that the Corinthian church was asking. And it appears from verse 12 that some, and, and again, we're not sure of the details. Paul's writing a letter in response to what he's received from them. And so it's, we don't have the letter they wrote to him. So it's hard to know exactly what Paul's dealing with. But nevertheless, in verse 12, it appears in some sense that some in the church began to teach there was no resurrection from the dead. In other words, you die, that's it, there's nothing else, Right? And Paul is writing to correct this mistake uh, because that, that whole idea of, is there anything el- you know, else out there besides what we see? Is there something on the other side of death? The Christian answer to that question is, yes, of course. And the reason, the reason we answer that question, yes, is because of Paul's gospel, which he gives in summary form in verses 1 through 5, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried And then on the third day, he rose again and appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And so it's the very fact of of Jesus' resurrection from the dead that helps us to answer that question that so many, even in our culture, are asking. And apart from the Christian narrative and the Christian worldview, I don't know how you answer with any certainty. But we serve a Savior who died, who was put into the ground, and who came out prove once and for all that all who go into the ground are going to come out and so this morning we want to look and we're just going to talk about different aspects of the of the resurrection this morning we want to look at the necessity because what paul's writing about here in these verses is that that this doctrine that he holds of the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead there's a necessity to it Uh, for both non-christians and christians alike and so this morning just that okay we want to talk about the necessity of the resurrection, and there are really three arguments that Paul makes for why the resurrection is absolutely necessary, why it's crucial, why it has to be at the very center of our lives, okay? And there's three things. First, it's necessary for our salvation. Secondly, the resurrection is necessary to explain the way Christians live their lives. And then finally, it's necessary because it provides the power for the life that Christians lead. Okay, so you see your three your three um, points there in the outline I gave you: the necessity of the resurrection, the life of the resurrection, and then the power of the resurrection. Those are the three things I want to talk about together this morning. If you give me a few minutes, okay? So let's just start uh, with the first thing. I want you to notice in this passage that, that there's an argument that Paul is making for the necessity of the resurrection, and I want to talk to both non Christians and Christians who are here this morning. Okay, first, if you're here and you're not a Christian, okay, what Paul says, the argument he's making here is this, that without the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, life is, he uses the word vanity, it is meaningless. Twice he says this in verse 14. The Greek word there he uses is a Greek word, kino, which is typically used as a a prefix to make a compound word, and it literally means without or empty or void. That's what that word means. So Shakespeare famously said, Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard of no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying... So without the resurrection, what what we're what we're learning from this text, without the resurrection, life is nothing. It's vanity. And yet what's fascinating is, is this is fast becoming the prevailing worldview in our culture, this Darwinian evolutionary theory that is quickly, very quickly eroding any belief in God or anything after you know, in, in any any sense of life after death. So if you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're you know, you say, I don't really know about this religion stuff. Here's what I want to do. I want to challenge you as your friend this morning to have the courage of your convictions because few people have the courage to take what they believe all the way you know, through the argument to its logical conclu- conclusion. And that is that, that a lot of times you'll meet a person who might be an atheist or agnostic, but they still want to hold on to some kind of moral standard. But what Paul is saying is if there is no God, no afterlife, if we live and we die and that's it, then there can be no imminent morality. There can't be any, no basis for right and wrong, no sense of deep abiding meaning. Life is meaningless. So J.P. Moreland, who's a Christian theologian, put it this way, he said, if I began as a cosmic accident and I end in utter annihilation, my molecules scattered to the universe, how can anything bracketed by those two points have any significance whatsoever? There are lots of people who believe in an ultimate future who do not i mean excuse me who don't believe in an ultimate future or life after death and they would say you know i don't know i don't know if there's a god as far as i you know as far as i know you die and that's it i don't think there's anything like an afterlife but but i still believe in right and wrong i believe we should be kind to one another and that's that's entirely inconsistent if life is without meaning and death is without consequence there's no such thing as right and wrong we're completely free to live any way we want to. To make up the rules as we go along. But, but see, you can't have it both ways. And what the resurrection of Jesus Christ teaches... The truth it brings into our life... And I just want to say it this way and then move on. The resurrection means... That that worldview is wrong. That life is actually a story. It's not an accident. See, the resurrection teaches that life is a story... Not an accident. So if you're here and you're not a Christian... I just want to encourage you. Think. Think out the implications of a a world and a worldview that does not take into consideration God. And then have the courage of those convictions. But if you're here inside the Christian worldview, okay, let me talk to the Christians for a minute then. Okay, Paul says the same thing to, to you and I. Without the resurrection, Paul says our faith is vanity. So look at verse 17. Christ has not been raised. Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. That Greek word there means literally without value or worthless. In other words, without the resurrection, your faith is like a check that's going to bounce. It's worthless. So the, the resurrection, even for Christians then, or even more so for Christians, is necessary for a couple of reasons, okay? And let me just make these as, as statements. First, the resurrection was God's vindication of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the resurrection was God's amen to all of Jesus' claims. Because he was raised, we can trust that he is who he says he is. But if he had stayed in the tomb, see, he would have been proven a liar. So what Christians proclaim is Jesus is alive. And therefore, we can't believe him when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. We can trust him because he lives. But second, the resurrection also, not only was it God's vindication, God raised Jesus from the dead as a vindication of his life and death for sinners. But secondly, the resurrection actually completed Christ's work. Without it, Paul says, we would still be in our sins. See, that's the problem. And here's what I want you to see. If you're here and you're still new to, new to this idea of Christianity, sin, we're told here, is not just bad things we do. It's who we are. It's a condition. We're in sin, right? The old word the catechisms use is in a state. We, 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 we are in, in a state of sin. And Paul says without, he says that the cross, without the resurrection, would have accomplished nothing. We'd still be trapped in this sinful condition, this sinful estate. Now, as I was reading the commentaries uh, this week, trying to understand exactly what Paul's saying here, the best explanation I came across was this, that the Scriptures, particularly places like Romans chapter 5, okay, connect uh, death with sin. And so Paul, there in Romans 5, says that death entered the world because of sin. And so in the Bible, death and sin always go together like a train, like the engine and the caboose of a train, right? Sin, which leads to death. And so the problem is not just that there's a guilt that's been attached to our rebellion against God. There's also the problem of ruin. That we're not just guilty, we're ruined. We don't work right. Our lives are literally falling apart. There's decay. And the gospel has to, to be a gospel, has to deal with both of those things. So how does God save us from the double trouble of sin and death? Well, death, again, death is the consequence for sin. But what would happen? So in other words, because of sin came death. Death is there because of sin, but so think through the, just rationally with me for a minute then. If death is a result of sin, what would happen if a sinless Savior died, though there was no sin in him to merit his death? What would happen? Death would die. See? See? You know the old hymn, crown him the Lord of life who triumphs o'er the grave, who rose victorious through the strife for those he came to save. His mercies now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. See, in order to bring us out of our sins, Jesus had to overcome the guilt of our sins, and he did that by dying in our place on the cross. By taking upon himself the punishment that was due us, that we might be forgiven. But in order to truly break the power of sin, he had to rise up out of death. And in his first breath, on the other side of the resurrection, death started to gasp. See, the cross is a solution to our guilt. The resurrection is a solution to our ruin. So that's the first first point I want to make, is that the necessity of the resurrection... Without the resurrection, we're still in our sins. The resurrection was God's vindication of Jesus, and it was the completion of Jesus' work. The cross, without the resurrection, would accomplish nothing. But when Jesus rose, he dealt a death blow to death because there was no sin in him to merit his death. Okay. Second, the second reason why the resurrection is necessary, why life doesn't work without it, you might say, or why Christianity at least doesn't work without it, is that the resurrection explains the way Christians live live their lives. And without it... Without the resurrection, Christianity would be foolishness. It would be illogical. And here is what I want to do. I am going to meditate for a few minutes together on verse nineteen. So look down there at verse nineteen because it's a really important verse. And really, if you if there is a community group, you know, if your community group's meeting this afternoon or whatever it might be, I mean, this this is just something where you probably need to take this home, sit down with a journal, write that verse out, and really, if you want to profit, think through the implications of what Paul says here in verse nineteen. You could spend the entire week doing that. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So the life of the resurrection, that's the second point. And here's what Paul's saying. How does the fact that life is a story, not an accident, that there is something beyond this life, how does this change the way we live? Because it does, that's Paul's point. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. John Piper, who's a pastor, well, he's no longer a pastor of Minneapolis, but just just retired, but in a couple of different places in his books, he's written about this verse in a way, and he's, he's explained this in a way that's better than I could even do it, so I'm just going to quote him uh, at length, okay? But here's how he puts it. He says, and this is from um, Desiring God, I think. Paul, he says, Paul says the life that he has chosen, which was full of suffering and sorrow and inconvenience, that it's pitiable if there is no resurrection. In other words, Christianity, as Paul understands, it is not the best way to maximize pleasure if this life is all there is. In fact, Paul tells us the best way to maximize pleasures in this life, down in verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He means, here's the part I want you to hear, he means without the hope of resurrection, one should pursue ordinary pleasures and avoid extraordinary suffering. Let me say that again, because that's the key. Paul means that, if there is no resurrection, then somebody who is wise would live by this rule. They would pursue ordinary pleasures. They would avoid extraordinary suffering. John Piper goes on to say, this is the life Paul has rejected as a Christian. <laughs> Thus, if the dead are not raised and there is no God and no heaven, he would not have plummelled his body the way he did. He would not have walked into five whippings of 39 lashes He would not have risked his life. He would not have accepted sleepless nights and cold and exposure. Instead, he would have simply lived the good life of comfort and ease as a respectable Jew with the prerogatives of Roman citizenship. When Paul says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink. He means there is a normal, simple, comfortable, ordinary life of human delights that we may enjoy with no troubling thoughts of heaven or hell or sin or holiness or God. If... There is no resurrection from the dead. And John Piper, in the way that John Piper does, he says, and what stuns me about this train of thought is that many professing Christians seem to be aiming at just this and calling it Christianity. He goes on to tell the story of a Cistercian abbot who was interviewed on television in Italy. And the question the interviewer asked was, if you were to realize at the end of your life you've given your life to being a monk and you know, living this life of incredible sacrifice and, and and whatnot. And the interviewer said, "What if, at the end of your life, you were to realize that atheism is true and there is no God? Tell me, what what if it's, what if atheism is true?" And the abbot replied, "Holiness and silence and sacrifice are beautiful, even without the promise of reward. I still will have used my life well." And what John Piper in the book says is, "No, that's the wrong answer." According to First Corinthians fifteen nineteen, that's the wrong answer. If Paul had been asked the same question, his answer would have been, you know, if, if, if he would have been interviewed on TV and somebody would have asked, what if at the end of your life you realize that you were wrong, that there is no resurrection, there is no God? Here would have been, Paul's answer would have been this, then I'm a fool and you should feel sorry for me because of all the sacrifices that I've made. I've wasted my life. So John Piper says that without the hope of resurrection, we should pursue ordinary pleasures and avoid extraordinary suffering. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. But what's, what's ironic about that is that that is secular materialism. That's epicur- Epicureanism, not Christianity. So a little philosophy lesson, okay? I hate to do this to you. Right? But real quick. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. It's this philosophical system that says what matter, what is the most important, what is the most valuable thing is to pursue pleasure. Life's about having fun. You can never have too much fun. There's no such thing as too much pleasure. The more pleasure, you know, the better it is. It's the highest good. Okay, Epicureanism, which is kind of a subset of hedonism, says that the ultimate good is the absence of pain. So it kind of turns it around negatively, right? So what a person should do, not necessarily like, um, you know, go eat uh, at um. Oh gosh, I already, I just lost my train of thought. What's the place? What's the place in Orlando where you go and just gorge yourself on bacon wrap? Yes, thank you. Right, a hedonist would say, go to Texas Day Brazil every night. Right, uh, some an Epicurean would say, no, 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 that's probably not because that your stomach hurts in the morning, right? And so maybe it's not even worth it. Let's just settle in, settle down, live a simple, carefree life full of. Any fear or worry or pain. And John Piper's explanation sums it up quite nicely. For, for, for this person, pursue ordinary pleasure, avoid extraordinary suffering. So if there is no resurrection, right? If life is all there is, then that makes sense. I mean, that, that kind of living makes sense. But what if there is a resurrection? See, and according to the Apostle Paul, that changes everything. I mean, if there is no resurrection, then by all means, pursue ordinary pleasures. And avoid extraordinary suffering. Put all your time and energy into enjoying this life to its absolute fullest because it's the only one you're going to have. But if there is a resurrection, then what I think Paul is saying and what John Piper is saying, and whenever John Piper and Paul, the apostle, agree, you got to pay attention, right? And what, they're, what, what they're saying is, if there is a resurrection, then turn that on its head. Then, then we should be people who pursue extraordinary suffering and who live with the ordinary pleasures when they come. See, I, I almost said pursue extraordinary suffering and avoid ordinary pleasures, which I think John Piper would probably very be very happy with, but he's an ascetic. He goes too far sometimes, I think. Okay? It's, it's not bad to enjoy ordinary, nice, comfortable things in life. You can go too far. So I think it's best to say... Pursue extraordinary suffering. Give thanks for the ordinary pleasures when they come, but don't live for them. Don't live for this life. Don't put all of your time and energy into enjoying this life, right? Because it's not the only one you have. There's one that's going to be even more real, even more lasting than the one we have right now. Now, this makes sense to me, what I'm saying here, and what you read in other places in the New Testament. Places like Matthew six 33, don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I mean, that's almost the exact opposite of of what Paul, you know, mocks. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. No, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't even give thought to what you're going to drink. Seek the kingdom. Right? Matthew 6, 19 through 21, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. 1 Timothy 6, command those who are rich in this present world not to put their hope in wealth, but to put their hope in God. Command them to be good, to do good, to be generous and willing to share, for in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Isn't that great? So don't live for this life. Live for the life to come. Because if in Christ we have... Hope only in this life we are of all people most to be pitied. And this resonates with me because Ashley and I joke all the time. We are about the, the, the we, we are not a whole lot of fun. We were not. When we lay in bed at night and look at Facebook, all the wonderful things that people are doing in these great captioned pictures and we're just like, we, we're just not fun, you know. And we feel, you know, we, we, we feel guilty about this, why, right? Because why? Because our culture, the, the, the main currency in our culture is being able to post pictures of all the fun things you're doing on Facebook. And what are we, we could put we dinner around the Bennett table tonight, you know? I mean, what are we going to do, right? I mean, it's just, you have four kids, we're just trying to keep our head above water most of the time. But here, so here's what comforts me, is we, we literally, I'm not kidding with you, pray for us, because we literally think something's wrong with us, we're not fun enough, we should be more fun, you know, because that's what you do, you're fun, that's who, people, nobody's going to want to, we're going to die old and alone, because nobody's going to want to be with us, you know, we're neurotic about this stuff, and what helps me in this passage, is that Paul says, life isn't just about having fun, we have work to do, I say, phew, you know, Because I resonate with that. I had a conversation with a guy that's my age the other day that isn't a Christian. We were talking about work, and he was just bellyaching and lamenting about having to spend so much time working. And and basically, at the end of the conversation, his basic idea was, you know, I just wish that I could get paid to have fun. I said, Wouldn't that be great? And it doesn't work that way. Right? So let me just ask it this way, and then move on to my last point. Let me ask you. As you try to, try to think about this. Now, I, I, I think this is helpful. Will death mark the loss of everything you love or will it be the beginning of what your heart hopes for? Let me ask it this way. Does the prospect of death when you feel about it, does it feel more like tax day or Christmas morning? Does death feel more like tax day or Christmas morning? As Paul said, it should feel like Christmas morning. So the resurrection is necessary because without it, life's going nowhere. It has no meaning. Worse, we're still in our sins. That was point number one. The resurrection is necessary because it explains why Christians live life the way they do. That was point number two. But then finally, the resurrection is necessary because it provides the power we need to live what Paul the Apostle and John Piper are calling us to from that verse 19 there. Now, did you notice? Come back in this with me for a minute. Did you notice the link between Christ's resurrection and our resurrection and Paul's thinking? Go back and look with me. Verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 13. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So those are parallel statements there. And they both teach the same thing, that if the dead are not resurrected, then Jesus was not resurrected. Now, invert that. What Paul's teaching, you know, to say it another way, is if Christ has been raised, then the dead will be raised also. The two go together. It's either both or neither. If Christ has been raised, then we will be raised with him. If Christ has not been raised, then we will not be raised. We're still in our sins. So there's this link that Paul makes connecting Christ's resurrection with ours. And this is what we mean when we talk about the doctrine of union with Christ. That when we believe in Jesus Christ, we literally believe into him. We come into him. My faith brings me into union with him so that I'm bound to him. I'm linked to him the way a husband and a wife are linked together and are said to be one. And practically what goes for him goes for me. So it works this way in marriage. Not from personal experience, of course. If you're having a good week, your spouse is having a bad week, you're having a bad week. Right? Why? Because you're so intimately connected with that other person, you you can't separate yourself from their reality. So what goes for them goes for you. You're having a great week. Your husband's having a bad week. You're having a bad week. Just the way it works. Um, I I could illustrate this another way. This past summer, we went on vacation, (laughs) and we went to this campground in in, um, western North Carolina that my wife remembered going to as a kid and had fond memories of, and what you did was you stayed in the campground. They rented tubes. You took a shuttle up to the top of the river, and then you floated three or four hours, or I don't know, maybe two hours down the river, got out at your campground, and then you could get back on and do it again if you wanted to. Um, we had my my very little niece and nephew around, and whenever there are small children around, my wife—it's like gravity for my wife—and so she was just going to stay back and take care of the kids and let all the adults go, which meant that I um, was I was in charge of Abby, who was seven at the time, to get down this this river. And we were told there were some pretty significant rapids, and she was very concerned. And so I had this brilliant idea. Even though they told me not to do it, I said, "I ah, don't know what they're talking about." I took a rope and I literally tied her raft to my raft, right, thinking. At least that way, you know, I'm not going to lose her, right? Uh, So I could navigate us down the river. It was shallow in places, right? I could get out and push us back into deep water, and she could just have a great time. I had no idea how much work it was going to create for me, right? There were a couple of pretty big rapids. She was pretty scared. What happened was, is I spent the better part of the trip not floating leisurely down the river, but in the water, having capsized, trying to keep her dry and save her from the rapids. I lost a pair of sunglasses. Why I had them in the first place, I have no idea, but it sounded like a good idea at the time, because I literally thought I'm kicking back on the raft, and my sunglasses we're going to have a great time, right? By the end, I was cut up, bruised, broken, exhausted. We get to the bottom Ashley's there waiting on us and Abby yells out to her, mommy, mommy, it was great. It was so fun. I didn't fall into the water one time. (laughs) And I'm like coming up like, oh, I'm never doing that again in my entire life, you know. And it's an illustration of the gospel. I really, you're right. I had tied myself to Abby. I'm pretty sure I would have stayed dry. Okay. It became a matter of self-righteousness about halfway down about who had fallen out of the raft the most. And it was me by far. I lost the boy, literally, my sons were just <laughs> they were laughing, right? I'm pretty sure that I would have stayed dry and had a lot more fun had I not tied myself to her, but in tying myself to her, I took her I took her weakness. I, the strong one, became the weak one, and she, the weak one, became the strong one. Right? I, who would have stayed dry, got soaked literally, and it was freezing, okay? so that she could stay dry, I got cut up and bruised, while the little girl who would have otherwise been beaten to a pulp stayed whole. Now, in faith, we are united to Jesus so that what goes for him goes for us, so that he, see, and Jesus does the same thing. He, He ties himself to us and ties us to him, so that he, the beloved son of the Father in heaven, He is the beloved son, and I am a rebel and a traitor. But because I'm in him, I become a son. What goes for him goes for me. And he died and rose again from the dead. And I'm going to die one day too, but because I'm connected to him, though I die, I will rise from the dead with him. What goes for him goes for me. Jesus died upon the cross for my sins. I died along with him. He was raised from the dead on the third day, and I was raised with him, was raised with him. He is seated in the heavens and at the right hand of God the Father, and I am seated there with him, Paul says. What goes for him goes for me. This is Paul's doctrine of union with Christ. If Jesus was raised, then we will be raised too because we are tied to him. And where he is going, we are going with him. And so his resurrection is the assurance that we will experience a resurrection too. But here's the thing. Union with Christ is not just a doctrine that we believe in. It's something we experience subjectively. And what that means is Christ was raised And therefore, at the end of our lives, when death finally overtakes us, there will be a resurrection waiting for us. We have the promise of a future resurrection, but that's not all. See, when you put your faith in Jesus and you come into him, you literally come alive. You come awake. A part of you that was dead comes back to life, and you experience a spiritual resurrection. There's a new power that comes into your life, not just future reality we're hoping for, but present reality. Spiritual reality we experience. Now, let me carry the metaphor just a little bit further and say this that the promise of resurrection is the power to go and die. And that's what Paul's talking about in verse 19 a life of sacrificial love for others, of dying to self to serve and care for others. That day on that river, I want you to know I died. I literally almost died. I hit the back of my head at one point. It was pretty scary, right? I I died. And that's that's what life is. So union with Christ means not only this resurrection that we experience, but it also means sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings, which is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. And that's why real Christianity can't fit inside a materialistic worldview. Jesus went to weddings and dinner parties, but his philosophy wasn't eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. In order to rescue us... He had to pursue extraordinary suffering, right? Taking upon himself the weakness of our human flesh, the hatreds of his enemies, the beatings, the lashings, the cross, the anguish of losing his father's fellowship, all of these things. And to do so, he had to abandon not just ordinary pleasures, but extraordinary pleasures. And what we're told in the Bible is that he did it for love for us. And now he sends us out by his spirit to rehearse his dying love for us in our dying love for others. So tied to him, we can't help but be pulled into his sacrificial love. Okay? But here's the good news. When Jesus' mission of love put him in the grave, the Father in heaven raised him up. What goes for him goes for me. Here's what that means. I'm tied to him in his resurrection. Therefore, when obedience to God's voice ends in my death... Whatever that death may look like, whether it is being cold and wet and beaten so your daughter can have a good time on a river, or whether it's a sleepless night caring for children, or mental exhaustion from caring for aging parents, or financial vulnerability because of a decision to be generous, whatever it might be, when obedience to God's voice ends in my death, I can have 100% confidence that on the other side of that death, the Father will raise me up too. At the end of my life, when all is spent and fading away, I need not fear. I have the promise of resurrection. Jesus, see, I'm talking to myself, okay? Jesus was raised from the dead. I'm tied to him. God will raise me up too. Death will not be tax day. It will be Christmas morning. But until that day, I can put myself at risk. I can hand myself over to a death sentence in love for others. I can joyfully pursue extraordinary sufferings alongside of ordinary pleasures. I can embrace the cost of the mission. And the power to do so is the promise of the resurrection. So the promise of the resurrection is the power to go and die. When I love my wife or my kids or my church with no thought for myself, I die. And the power for that comes from knowing that God promises to raise me up with Christ. He won't leave me out there. He won't leave me dead in the grave. He can't. Because Jesus has already been raised. And I'm tied to him. Therefore, what goes for him goes for me. Let's pray together, can we? Father, help us now in our weakness as we come to this table to celebrate the mysteries of the Gospels we've just talked about. Come and uh, form in us as your people this, this commitment and willingness uh, to go and die for others, knowing uh, that in this meal we celebrate the death of our Savior Jesus Christ, who on the third day was raised, which is the promise that provides the power for the life of discipleship, radical obedience, the embracing of radical suffering for the sake of your great name and glory and for the sake of loving others well. So give us the power and the courage we need uh, to do just that, that you might uh, be pleased and that we might bear fruit that would honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus conquered the grave. He is alive. Amen. And in his life is the promise, and in his resurrection is the promise of life and resurrection for you. It is the promise of that that resurrection that is the power to go and die. So even as this is ascending out, even as we are being sent out as Jesus' people, the one who died for us, to go and die in love for others. This benediction is the pledge of the Father, that in your moment of greatest need that he will come. And he will lift you up and he will rescue you and he will give to you everything you need that you can count on him. So with that assurance, go in obedience to his commands and bear fruit that will glorify him. Receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.